When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Well, there's still no government and the 1916 commemorations continue, but the wheels of business roll on. On today's programme, we'll take a glimpse at Ireland's real economy via new data on the property market and retail sales. A little later, I'll be joined by Irish Times technology correspondent Kira O'Brien to discuss whether too much is expected these days of Apple. But first, to new property and sales figures today from the CSO. The data shows that residential property prices rose by 8% in the year to February, after a 7.6% advance in the previous month and a rise of almost 15% in the previous year. To discuss this data and strong retail sales figures, I'm joined on the line by John McCartney, who is Head of Research at Savills, and by Alan McQuaid, Chief Economist at Merion Stockbrokers. John McCartney, what is going on in these figures? It seems that the rate of increase in the month to February is a little bit more than the annual rate of increase in the year to January. But at the same time, we are seeing the beginnings of a price dip, albeit by a very small amount, in Dublin. Yes, indeed. I think that that has been sort of evident, really, for the last 12 months, if we're honest about it. Um, I think it's crystal clear what's happening. Um, I think, fundamentally, there is inflationary pressure in the market, and that derives from the fact that there are just too few housing units available to uh, accommodate the number of bodies that are looking for beds. So it's creating competitive bidding, both on the rented side and in the owner-occupied sector, driving up prices and rents. So I think that that is the sort of the underlying mood music. However, what we've seen, I think, um, over the last 12 months is the effects of policy intervention. We had the central bank coming in and legislating to uh, tighten mortgage lending uh, in February 2015. And that fundamentally affected the Dublin market more than anywhere else. It meant that people were less able to pay high prices in Dublin. Um, and so what did they do? They, some of them went into the rented sector, driving up rents, and other ones uh, went uh, further down the country or into, deeper into the commuter belt in order to find more affordable housing. And that's why we see the pattern that we see today, and that is that house price growth outside Dublin 
is rising much more strongly, 11.5% year on year. And more importantly, I suppose, the rate of growth in house prices outside Dublin is accelerating, whereas exactly the opposite is the case in Dublin. Slower price growth and the rate of growth falling. Very interesting. Alan McQuaid, would you concur with that assessment, a function of supply and demand and a function also of the central bank rules? Yeah, I think um, there's no doubt that the, 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 the lack of supply, you know, has been an issue in, in driving prices up over the last three years. But I think the, the interesting development is that if you look at the, the CSO data, is that um, the, 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 the fall year on year appears to have stalled. I mean, in the middle of last year, it looked like we we're in a steady downward trend. And that would be down to very, very low uh, year-in-year growth rates by the end of 2016, or possibly even negative territory. But what's actually happened in the last few months is that um, prices have, have come back to, you know, and they're actually risen. Uh, and I think today's figures were the highest in five months. So, you know, there's no doubt that the central bank uh, measures are, are, are having a negative impact. But it does look like the, the overall, I suppose, pickup in the economy, and particularly um, the, you know, the, the, the labour market where we're seeing 50,000 jobs being created on a net basis over the last couple of years, you know, and each year, um, I think there's obviously signs that wages are on the, on the rise as well. So more disposable income it seems to be, you know, I, I think sort of helping to keep the Dublin market up, even though, as John said, that, you know, it's not growing as strongly as 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 outside the capital. And I think that trend will continue, but it will be interesting to see what happens in the coming months, whether Dublin, you know, um, does continue to stabilise or whether we do see, um, you know, uh, the year-on-year rate of, uh, of increase starting to, f- to fall sharply over, over over the next few months. My good feeling is that the central bank measures are clearly going to have a, a, have a negative impact, um, which they already have, but I think they'll continue to do so. Uh, but the fact that the economy grew in real terms by um, 7.8%, you know, last year, and as we're going to mention as well, the retail sales figures for the first couple of months of this year, very, very strong, up almost 11% year in year the first two months, would suggest that consumers are still pretty uh, feeling pretty confident about things. So that might well keep the markets, the housing market up, uh, you know, stronger than, than may well have been the case or may well have been perceived to be the case a few months ago. What of the argument, uh, John, that uh, advanced indeed by by people in the in the in the central bank that you're not really going to see the true impact of the central bank rules until the middle of this year? Because at the time when the rules were introduced last February, a fair number of mortgage uh, transactions would have already been in the works, would have already been in, pr- in process, and they would have uh, not been completed until sometime after the rules came in, and therefore that it's only when this summer comes that the true impact of the rules will be seen is that is that a uh, would you be inclined to concur with that argument absolutely um when the central bank first announced these rules in uh, their intention to do something to tighten mortgage lending in october 2014 what we saw was an influx of um borrowers coming in and getting loan approval in principle And they were then able to go and um, use those legacy loan approvals, if you want to call them that, over the next six months to borrow under the old regime, Um, notwithstanding the fact that by February the central bank had uh, gone ahead and legislated um, to to tighten mortgage lending. So, in other words, you've got people coming in and preempting the tighter mortgage lending 
by getting the loan approval before the new rules were actually brought into law. And they did their deals in the first half of 2015, and as a result, uh, we won't really get a fair like-for-like comparison year-on-year until we move into the second half of this year. So that is factually correct. And John, John, as as, as, as a man immersed in in research in the the property market, what's the view uh, in the market? What do people say in the market in in terms of the the information that is available to participants? Uh, What's the view? What are the figures likely to show in the middle of this year? Well, I I, I suppose... To put some facts on it, um, prices in Dublin, according to the official index, have fallen month on month for the last four months in succession. They have fallen month on month in seven of the 13 months since the central bank figures, or since the central bank rules were introduced. So the sentiment among agents in Dublin is that, look, at the moment, house prices in Dublin are probably falling or level at best, but in many neighbourhoods they are falling. In the longer term, however, um, certainly my view is that the central bank rules are not going to curtail house price growth. Ultimately, it's a matter of affordability. At the moment, um, people can't afford to buy, or a lot of people can't afford to buy properties in Dublin because they can't borrow enough. So that's, that's, that's fine, we understand that. But what's critical to to, to the whole thing is that these people have to live somewhere. So where do they go? They go into the rented sector. That drives up rents. All else equal, the yield goes up. That attracts investors. And the investors will ultimately come in and compete to buy the properties because you can now get a a yield of 5.8% on average on residential property across Dublin compared with the banking deposit of less than 1%. So well, that's, a, that's, compelling. That's, that, that's, that's compelling enough in its own right if you, have a, if, if you have the wherewithal to go down that road. And we know that many people do, Arthur, because at the moment there's $95 billion of household money on deposit earning nothing in the covered banks excluding the post office. So, uh, so my view is, and I think that the, the data is beginning to pan out in this way, but my view is that um, investors will respond ultimately as owner-occupiers are frustrated and driven into the private rented sector, driving up rents, driving up yields. The investors come in, they compete with each other and with any remaining owner-occupiers to buy the properties that are there. And this will ultimately drive up prices through the back door. It's just going to take a bit longer to happen. Um, but certainly all the things that we would expect uh, that are consistent with that narrative are already happening, like we see rents increasing in Dublin very sharply. Uh, We see investors uh, coming in. They account for a quarter of our sales in Savills uh, and have been pretty consistent at that over the last two years. So um, that's that's the narrative that I expect (coughs) to play out over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, Alan McQuaid, uh, what do you make of the, the pressure on the central bank to uh, unwind or dilute the rules a little? The bank has made it very clear that the rules are here to stay, uh, but uh, there is no doubt that pressure is there. We had uh, Richie Boucher of the Bank of Ireland at the weekend in a newspaper interview saying that the rules should be relaxed. Uh, we know the view of the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan. He intervened many months ago. The central bank has said the results of the review will be out later on this year. How do you, what do you reckon will happen? 
Well, I think, listen to John's comments there, it, it, it sounded very much like Groundhog Day to me in terms of where we were before a few years ago with you know investors pushing up property prices and ultimately that squeezed out the, the, ordinary, the ordinary punter in the street and look what happened there. And uh, I think what the central bank is doing or uh, has done is really in response to that. I mean, you, you can't have a boat race. You can't be sort of crying a blue murder the fact that the regulator was asleep at the wheel uh, last time around and then when they, they, they tried to you know to you know uh, get ahead of get ahead of uh, any potential problem this time that you you, you sort of sort of criticized them so I think um, well in an ideal world you know um, you want to have affordable housing for everybody and uh, make sure that you know there's no repeat of what went on last time um, that's it's, it's quite difficult to do um, but, but I think you know personally I think the central bank is doing the right thing um, I think there should be these, the, the criteria should be there I think ultimately what you want is to bring the price of houses down so that a 20% deposit or whatever, you know, is affordable for most people. And the problem at the moment is that the prices of houses are so expensive that, you know, if you're asked to put up 20% or whatever, that you just can't, most people just don't have it. But uh, if more supply comes onto the market, um, you know, that in theory should should address the issue. Um, but I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't be critical of the central bank now, and I'm not overly keen on politicians uh, getting involved in, 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 you know, in the markets. And we've already had this suggestion yesterday that they're going to cut VAT on, on, on uh, you know, uh, a bit like they did the tourism industry, reduce the VAT rate uh, on new houses, etc. So in many ways, you could argue that fiscal policy is trying to counteract uh, the the moves of the central bank. And I think ultimately that, that could be potentially dangerous going, going forward. Um, so while it, many people might not, might not like it, I mean, I think the central bank are doing their job. And I think um, I'd be very surprised Given, you know, I know that Philip Lane has suggested that they look at it, but I mean, I don't think there'll be a major, major uh, drawback from the central bank. I think they will stick with it and, uh, you know, and, and see how things play out uh, over the next year or two. Uh, and, and then they may address it again. But I think for the time being, I think those rules will remain in place. John McCartney, is, 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 is that a view that would uh, find favour in the, in, in the property sector itself? Or what's the sense there? Well, I, th- I think within the property sector, you get a, a whole variety of, of different opinions. Uh, like Alan, I, you know, I think that the central bank rules have a lot of merit, uh, and certainly the solution to our problems isn't giving people is, isn't giving people more money to compete to buy the same number of houses. That's not going to work. It's always going to drive up prices and create potentially instability. So, I think in principle, the, the rules fine. I, I, I have some concerns that they've been introduced at a time when we don't have the supply of properties um, to, to prevent prices going up. And, and, and I, to, you know, to me, the, all of the solutions to the housing market come back to the supply side. The two things I would mention about the central bank rules, the first thing I would say is that, look, if, if my analysis is correct, the net outcome is not going to be anything other than a, a different ratio of owner-occupiers and renters in the market. I think the rules are driving people, particularly in the big cities, into the rented tenure, whereas otherwise they would have been in owner-occupation. And that's fine, and it's all very European and all of that. But ultimately, if we go the way of the UK, um, what we are moving towards is a model where people 
spend maybe their entire lives in the rented sector. And that's fine if the pension system and everything else is set up to cater for that. But what I would be concerned about is that in Ireland, you know, we have this sort of very traditional model of owner occupation. And that is you buy your house in your late 20s, you pay a mortgage on it, you, you, you have the mortgage repaid approximately by the time you retire. And then when it comes to retirement age, you live rent-free for the rest of your life and you have housing equity to dip into should you need it for emergencies like medical emergencies or whatever. And, you know, if we have a situation where people are renting for much longer or indeed renting for their entire lives, I think you do have to look at the knock-on effects that that will have. What happens when they get to retirement age and they have to fund ongoing rental costs out of their pensions? Are the pensions big enough uh, to support that, I don't know if they are. So that's one thing uh, that I would be concerned about. Another point I've been making about the, the, the central bank rules is that, you know, many people argue that, look, the purpose of these rules isn't a de facto to um, reduce house prices or control house prices. Rather, it is to support the integrity of the financial system. Mm. And therefore, you know, people argue that these are a good thing. They support the stability of the banks. We can, I think, though, learn a lesson from what's happening in the UK. Um, in the UK, Mark Carney has made a number of statements about his concerns that the, the buy-to-let sector has become too big. And what he's saying really is that, you know, we've got too big a rental sector. The concern here is that if there's any bump in the road, you can get a glut of investors flipping the properties and selling them quickly. Uh, and in the rush for the door, what you can have is a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where other investors go, God, I need to get out. And they're selling multiple properties, you know, not just... Well, didn't we have you know, a touch of that here? We certainly did. And that that then can become a problem for the financial system. In other words, it can become destabilizing, you know, because if there's a bump in the road as an owner-occupier, you're not going to sell your house because you've got... You've got to live somewhere, there, you yeah. somewhere to live. But if you've got six rented properties and you think you, you, you get the idea that they're all going to lose value, you could very quickly flip them. And if everybody's thinking the same way, it could collapse house prices and lead to widespread negative equity. And we know that that's uh, bad news for the stability of the financial system. So in the UK, uh, from tomorrow... Uh, what what they're going to do is they're going to put um, a punitive stamp duty on investors to try and curtail the growth in the private rented sector. And I see, uh, indeed, on the BBC this morning, uh, there there is um, uh, an, an article uh, saying that the central bank wants to introduce further uh, mortgage restrictions on buy-to-let investors, specifically to curtail the size of, of the buy-to-let sector. And I think we just need to think our way through this because at the moment Ireland's central bank is on a different course of action to the UK central bank. The actions of the of, of the bank of the central bank of Ireland are actually um, you know in practice to make the private rented ten- tenure bigger and that's exactly the opposite of what the central bank in the UK wants to do. That's a very interesting point. Now gentlemen we, we, we're also going to deal with the figures on uh, retail sales which uh, really are quite uh, quite impressive on the face of it. The data show that the volume of retail sales uh, in February compared with January was uh, up uh, 11% on an annualised basis. And when you strip out motor trade, 
which is a big component of these figures. Uh, the uh, increase in the volume of sales in the month was a uh, 0.2, but when compared on an annualized basis, the increase was in excess of 7%. Alan McQuaid, uh, what do you make of these figures? Do these figures indicate that the Irish punter uh, continues to spend money? Yeah, I think so, Arthur. I mean, you know, I think consumer confidence hit a 15-year high in, in January. Uh, it was a 10-year high last year. So I think there's no doubt that, um, I think John alluded to already in the, in the piece about property prices, that, you know, there's no return on having money in, 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 on deposit. Um, so I think there's a lot of money there available to consumers. Um, I think, as I said, the labour market has, has improved, so people's disposable income has gone up. Uh, we've had t- t- tax concessions in, in, in recent budgets. Uh, and I think people are more confident about the about the outlook. I mean, going forward, the economy grew strongly last year, and consumers were a big part of that. And I think um, there'll be a big part of it again this year. I mean, I think obviously a lot of the focus tends to be on car sales, because cars, apart from houses, are the biggest spend you can make in your life. Um, but, I mean, apart from that, I mean, uh, the other areas have improved. You know, I think on a monthly basis, they tend to be quite erratic. They're up some months down the next. But uh, on an annual basis, I think mo- most sectors have seen uh, seen increases over the last 12 months or so, which is encouraging. And I think it's, it's good news for um, uh, our national output this year because consumers are such a big part of, of GDP growth. So if the consumer is spending money, um, you'd have to say, based on these figures for the first couple of months of the year, that the risk to, to, to economic growth is to the upside rather than the downside, even though there, there are other sort of headwinds that, that, that may sort of uh, affect growth uh, later on in the year. Uh, most honestly, the... Uh, the referendum in the UK, and if Britain were to vote to leave the, you know, leave the EU, but I think as things currently stand, you'd have to say consumers look very, very healthy, um, and I think they'll continue to spend. And domestic, I mean, and, and, that, and, that, and that in the in the economic sense, that's a, that's all about domestic demand, which was uh, uh, absent in the first phase of recovery, and uh, now seems to be back with a bang. Yeah, I think it's very encouraging. I mean, you know, you know, the initial stages of 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 the recovery were driven by exports, but the last year or so, we have seen domestic demand pick up quite a lot, and consumers certainly, I think, feel more confident. Uh, now, clearly, we're not going back to the sort of the confidence levels of, of people saying, oh, "We're back to Celtic toy, everything's rose in the garden." Because obviously, with our previous piece about property prices, a lot of people are still in negative equity and are still suffering from the the, the downturn. But I think, in, in general terms. I think people feel the worst is over, uh, the austerity is, is gone, and that um, the next few budgets, all things being equal, will be more sort of a, a giveaway than sort of t- t- taking back. So, on that basis, and I suppose the key to, to all this and to the housing market as well is that you know, employment prospects have, have, have improved quite dramatically over the last few, you know last couple of years. Unemployment has gone from 15.1. Uh, at, at, at the peak of, of the downturn to uh, 8.8 now, so we have seen a sizable, uh, you know, fall in unemployment, and I think that trend is going to continue. Uh, or be probably not going to as, as fall as quickly as 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 you've seen the last couple of years. Particularly, still fall, and you know, into into you know, seven percent, six percent over the next few years, and and that coupled with employment increasing, I think, should uh, help to see consumer spending uh, continue to rise. John McCartney, with your non-property hat on, what do you make of these retail sales figures? Yeah, well, on the face of it, they're certainly uh, very positive. Um, 
you know, I mean, as economists, we do tend to sort of discount the, the motors element because of, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of seasonality in that because the, of the new registration every, every six months. Um, but still in all, and just to pick up on a point that Alan made, um, you know, the fact that motor sales are up so strongly, I think, does give us a lens into the psychology of the consumer because, indeed, the car is one of the biggest items you'll ever buy. And you're not going to go out and do that unless you're feeling pretty confident. So I think it is a, a useful indicator in itself of how the consumer is feeling. Certainly, um, the retail sales figures do chime um, consistently with all of the other sort of indicators that you would be looking at on the consumer economy dashboard. As Alan mentioned, con- consumer sentiment. We see VAT receipts are still up, although they were maybe a, a little bit of a blip in, in February. Uh, so I think things generally um, pretty pretty good there. And I would agree with Alan that a lot of this is driven by jobs. Certainly in our econometric modelling of retail rents and the factors that drive rents that are paid in the retail sector, what we see is that jobs growth is the most important variable. A 1% increase in employment brings about a 0.9% increase in retail rents about 15 months later. So, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be a much more important indicator than sentiment or um, even VAT receipts or things like that, So, um, or, or earnings for that matter. So um, I think the jobs growth uh, is very positive. The one caveat I, I would make in terms of the retail sales figures is that although the volume sales are up, Uh, In all sectors of the retail economy, with the exception of bars and news agents, we're seeing continued discounting. So the the sales volumes are rising, but retailers are dropping prices. Now, some of that is down to um, oil prices, you know, and for example, you you know, you you see that... um, that, that, that petrol stations and all of that, you, you see very drastic reductions in prices there, and it's nothing sure. to do with competition in the local market. It's all to do with the fact that the input costs are lower. And it's good but, news for the consumer. Absolutely. It's like a pay rise um, for, for consumers. But uh, even within the clothing sector and the electro- electrical goods sector and all of those retail sectors, you're seeing that retailers are having to discount to drive the higher volume sales. Now, the good news is that the level of discounting that they're having to um, introduce is getting smaller all the time. And it, it will... I think over the next 12 to 18 months be a case where we once again start to see retailers in that sort of sweet spot where they can both increase prices and increase the volume of sales. But we're not we're not there yet for most retailers. No, Alan McQuaidy, you, you, you probably concur. I mean, we, we have a, you know, impress, impressive volume growth, but we're, we're, we're far off anything approaching a, a big rate of inflation here. Well, I think you, you, you could argue this the same for most economies in, in the world. I mean, I think this is the issue, really, that if you look at the what's going on in the U.S. and U.K. and other countries, I mean, you've got the headline inflation rates are, are close to zero, and most countries are it actually turn negative, I think, uh, in the Eurozone, etc. So I think what you're seeing is that, yes, I mean, consumer goods um, and, you know, the, are, are weak, but where, where, where inflation is involved is services that are actually on the road. There is a big, uh, you know, split there. I mean, services inflation is on the rise quite sharply. I mean, the cost of uh, insurance and, and education has gone on the rise, but other things like goods, as John said, are, are actually 
quite weak. So it is good news for consumers. Uh, and I'd agree, I think you'd, you, you, you would think that um, with the economy growing at the level it is growing here and becoming more confident about spending and, you know, with things improving on disposable income, employment front, that, you, you know, that uh, down the line that retailers might be in a better position 12 months down the road to, to be able to, to hike prices a bit more than we've been able, been able to do in the last few years. Very good. Well, uh, my thanks to you, Alan McQuaid, and also to John McCartney uh, for that uh, very informative uh, discussion on these new data today from the CSO. And we'll now move to a break. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704 1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. And now to Apple. It's a rare day when the company is not in the news. Apple has this week avoided court action with the FBI after the US intelligence agency found a way to crack the phone of Syed Farouk, the man who, with his wife, killed 14 people in a shooting rampage in San Bernardino in December. Apple has also introduced a cheaper version of its iPhone, the iPhone SE. I'm joined by Kira O'Brien, technology correspondent of the Irish Times, to discuss whether too much is expected these days of Apple. Yes, so I think it's uh, it's definitely one of those things that we all expect a lot when it comes to phone launches. Now, and that that's across the board, whether it's Apple, Samsung, everybody is expecting the next big product. Obviously, a lot of that pressure falls on Apple because it has made a name for itself. I mean, look, going back to nine years ago, the iPhone didn't was just it was in its infancy at that stage, and now look at it. At that stage, everybody had Nokia phones, and now or a BlackBerry or a BlackBerry, yes. And now that the iPhone and Android phones have taken over, and things have changed so much in the meantime and there's been such leaps in the technology since that initial iPhone that you know when Apple say they're going to announce a new product and people get excited the hype builds and before you know where you are you're at the launch day and then those same people are saying well actually you know I wasn't all that impressed mainly because they don't have you know this massively um, revolutionary new feature that nobody has thought of yet. Well, if we could get an iPhone to make a cup of coffee, I think it would go great. I think so, yes. But, I mean, if you look at what they actually do, they do some things very well. They now, I think the last sales figures, they sold over 74, close to 75 million iPhones. In a single quarter. In a single, in a single quarter. quarter. That's you in go three back, months. You go back three years, I think it was something like 48 million. It's a massive leap. And you don't need to sustain that uh, growth for so long. Well, because this time around, it wasn't quite as stellar growth. It was something like 0.4%. Uh, people were obviously a little bit disappointed. And this is something that you get, obviously, when you have investors. They want to see growth. They want to see uh, a future for you know the, the, their shares to keep going up. And I think it's it's... Something that's been talked quite a bit about with, say, the likes of Dell, when Michael Dell fought to take the company private again. And he's saying, now we can do all this stuff without investors hanging over our shoulders, without this this three-monthly thing on Wall Street. And the market is very, very demanding. Exactly. Um, and probably rightly so. But at the same time, you have to look at those sales figures and think, 
they're still doing something right because 70, 74 million, over 74 million of these iPhones are being sold in a three-month period. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a rate of more than 300 million in a single year. It's insane. I mean, if you look back at how many they've sold in the entire lifespan of the iPhone, it's phenomenal. And yet people still expect more. Um, you know, it's 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 just, it's, it's a it's a an unusual thing if you look at it and you really kind of look at what they're actually doing. You think, how much more can they possibly do? How, how many more people who don't have iPhones actually want one? I mean, they've pretty much done what they set out to do. They, they have sold iPhones and, and iPads. They've created new product categories and people still kind of say, well, yeah, not good enough. But there's always a, the growth, the, the demand for growth in business. That's in the nature of business. That's in the nature of investment. There People is. buy shares. They're, 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 they're buying shares on the basis of future mm-hmm. performance. The past performance is in the past. I think, though, it's, it, in a way, sometimes people are looking at the wrong thing. Um, people kind of concentrate on the growth figures for the iPhone. I mean, Apple has obviously introduced the iPad, the iPhone, the iPad. They've introduced other products that have done reasonably well, not quite as stellar, not quite as game-changing. Um, they have Apple TV, which is the the box that you can stream video through, and now with, I suppose, with the new uh, the new operating system on, you can play games off it, that kind of thing. Um, there's been talk of an actual Apple TV that has yet to materialise. I mean, this is all based on, uh, I suppose, based on people watching what Apple are doing, who they're hiring, the patents they're filing. Now, not every patent that they actually submit is ever going to make it onto a, a product. I mean, you can see that all companies do it. They just they file patents left, right, and centre. Um, what I suppose that the big thing over the last couple of years was obviously the Apple Watch um, and the iPad Pro. And the iPad Pro in itself was not really a new category. The Apple Watch would have been Apple's first proper new product um, in several years. But how's that going? Um, I don't think it's gone really as well as expected. And when Apple get involved in a sector, expectations run high, as we've already just discussed. Um, when there was talk of Apple doing a smartwatch, Everybody got very, very excited, even though there are smartwatches out there. I have a drawer full of smartwatches. I use a couple consistently because I really like them. Um, the idea that, the, that basically the smartwatch industry, it's still, a, a, it's still in its very early days. Not everybody is convinced that they need um, a smartwatch in the same way that most people uh, accept these days. You kind of have to have a mobile phone if you want to stay in contact with people. Obviously, you know, not everybody has to have a smartphone. Uh, there are still uh, a thriving business in feature phones, as they're called, which is basically ones without um, touch screens and phones for holdouts. Phone. Yes, <laughs> phones that will last for days on standby. Put it that way. Um, the uh, the smartwatch hasn't really well. It's it's got a certain amount of of traction within groups of people. It's not really that kind of mainstream product the way the smartphone is. Uh, and you, it is a bit of a hard sell to people as to why they're going to need something else that they have to charge every couple of days or every night in some cases. And something which tells the time in a scenario where all phones tell the time these days. Yes, well, that's the other thing. Now, I, I, as I said, I wear them. I'm not wearing one right now, but uh, I do wear one. I do have an Apple Watch and I do find them good. I mean, it's there is this thing that where people say it takes away the... Um, the kind of the, the antisocial thing of checking your phone when your phone starts ringing, but instead all it's done really is replace it with the antisocial thing of checking your watch when your phone starts ringing, which has the ultimate result of making you look like you're bored with the people you're talking to. So that aside, I mean, it is still um, it's still in its early days, and while it hasn't set the sector on fire, you know, I think it's generally agreed though that um, it's kind of that thing of a rising tide lifts all ships. 
smartwatch makers are upping their game because Apple has got involved. And, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see where the next couple of years go. So, as I said, I think that sometimes people are looking in the wrong place. They're concentrating too much on sales figures for products that have been around for a very long time in a very saturated market. Um, and they're not really looking too much at what Apple is doing elsewhere. And what do you make of the new iPhone, the iPhone SE? Um, I am due to get my hands on one to do a proper review, so I reserve ultimate judgment until then. But I have to be honest, I'm a fan of bigger screen phones. I do a lot of work on them. Anybody who works quite a bit on their phone or on a tablet, those phones, the anything with kind of a five-inch screen and over, is a, they're a lot easier to use. And they're also a lot better for if you watch video. So if you travel a lot, you know, these a bigger screen phone is not... The big, the, it's not a hardship to have. Uh, but there are quite a, a few people out there who prefer smaller screen phones, who would think that a four-inch screen is more than enough to have on a phone. And this is the market that Apple is trying to tap into. And I think they've probably, they've they've hit it more on the head than they did with the iPhone 5C, which was their, I suppose, their more budget-friendly phone before. Because the uh, iPhone 6 SE has a, a premium look to it. It has all the power that you're going to need and it just it has this smaller screen. Uh, yes, it, it drops out a couple of things here and there, but the price for it is just far more palatable, I think, for people. And, of course, the company has also been in the news over this conflict with the FBI. Now, the court case is not going to go ahead. The FBI has found a way of cracking this man's phone. Apple would say this is a good day for the consumer. This is a good day for the privacy of its customers. But the people on the law enforcement side of the fence would say, well, look at, you know, the FBI is investigating a pretty serious crime. People died. There may be information on this man's phone that could lead to other arrests and lead to the prevention of other crimes. I'm kind of, I'm in two minds about this one. Uh, I can see the points on both sides. Um, Obviously, from a, an anti-terrorism point of view, any tools that law enforcement agencies have at their disposal, you know, that's uh, that help prevent attacks, people will welcome. As a consumer, I'm very glad that Apple actually stood up and said no. Um, mainly because there's this thing of, of uh, if the FBI had access to... If, if the FBI had got its way, if Apple had been forced to build a backdoor um, that the FBI could exploit... For this occasion, that's one thing. But what about the next occasion? And it's it's kind of it's it's very much um, you're expecting people to behave honourably. If everybody is behaving above board in, with regards to these workarounds, well, that's fine. But these things tend to creep, you know. So today it's you know a backdoor into encryption for um, to fight terrorism. You know, then tomorrow it could be you know just local law enforcement using it because they want to get information from a suspect that they don't have access to, and before you know it, it leaves it open to everybody. It's not just about leaving it open for law enforcement. It's it's once that that vulnerability is there, anybody can exploit it. And while the intention would be, I suppose, the intentions would be noble, um, it put Apple in a very odd situation where they were. I suppose they were having to say um, that, no, we're not going to help you investigate this particular act. And it doesn't matter that it was terrorism. It's just a it's a safety thing for all consumers. And as far as they were concerned, it set a dangerous precedent. Now, obviously, from Apple's point of view, it's good business not to uh, have your customers worried that their their privacy and their data may be compromised either by law enforcement or by uh, somebody, by criminals. And that's, that's really where 
most people's um, I suppose most people's fears would be that okay yes the FBI may want it for legitimate means but what about the criminals who would have exactly the same um, kind of the technical expertise at their disposal probably more actually considering the F- the FBI couldn't crack the phone without help from an outside party what of the argument that this was a decision which was on its way to adjudication by a court by a judge and that uh, it's not unusual for law enforcement agencies all over the world to gain access to private communications. The notion of the phone tap is hardly a new notion. There are procedures in place in countries all over the world for the authorities, to call them that, to gain access to what is going on in private conversations. I think you have to draw a line somewhere. Um, you could argue you could argue that, yes, the the FBI and law enforcement, they, they have to have access to this kind of information. Uh, but Apple does not have to build in a back door to this. I mean, look, they could have unlocked that phone um, with brute force. There's, there's different types, of, there's different ways of getting access to that. Obviously, Apple wants to make its devices as secure as possible. So what they have done is, which you have this four, this alpha, you, basically it's a four digit password or a six digit password and it, most people will stick with one of those and mostly numbers. You can change it to alphanumeric which is by the way far more secure so if you're ever worried about the security of your phone that's what you do. Um, the problem is is that Apple has built in um, ways to stop people from hacking it because you could put all those uh, different combinations in it's either it's 10,000 or a million depending on which version of which whether you use the, the four digit one or the six digit one you can build a robot that will do that automatically for you and it will do it over time now Apple has built in the the security features to stop that from happening so 10 F, 10 wrong guesses if you have that enabled can wipe your phone um I don't have it enabled because I have a toddler who likes to bash away at the screen on my phone and my phone would be constantly wiped. But what it does do is it disables the phone after a certain number of wrong guesses. It's disabled for a minute and then it's disabled for 10 minutes. It can be disabled for an hour, you know. So it would take a long time for them to actually break that by brute force. So they decided, the FBI decided that they they were going to go straight to Apple and get Apple to do it. But, you know, Apple was never going to be able to do that because that would just put them in... A horrible situation with their customers. They have millions and millions of customers who are, let's face it, relying on them to a certain extent to protect their privacy. Not all of whom live in democracies, they would say. Exactly. And again, it comes back to that thing of if you do it for one, then it's open to all in a way. And you can't say, right, only the FBI can have this or only the NSA can have this. And the thing is now, they haven't actually said, the FBI hasn't actually said what methods it used to crack the phone if there is actually a security vulnerability in Apple's software. And the thing is, like, security vulnerabilities are not new. Um, you can see that from the fact that this was an older iPhone. It's an iPhone 5C, I think. So it would have been an older iPhone with older security protocols on it. It would have had an, probably an older version of the software on it. There's been updates since that incident happened. Um, it's... Just because whatever worked on that phone, it doesn't necessarily mean it will work on, say, the newer phone or the the ones that are out this month. Um, It may be an isolated incident. What they actually, what the FBI wanted was, um, they wanted to be able to bypass the wipe. They wanted to possibly be able to uh, enter the passcode over Wi-Fi or through Lightning Port. And that's just insane. Um, 
from a company's point of view, for if Apple had allowed that, that just leaves things massively open to all sorts of nasty stuff that as a customer, as a user of Apple products, I certainly would not have been happy with. But there is another argument, isn't there? Because what you have here essentially is a conflict between public authorities mm-hmm. in a democracy against a private corporation which isn't answerable to the public, but which is answerable essentially to its own shareholders. Yes, they're providing a service. Yes, they have customers. But the ultimate authority when it comes to the company is the investor. Yes, but then you'd, uh, it's, it's, it's all down to people's motives as well. Um, some people would trust Apple probably more than they would trust police. Some people would trust police more than they would trust Apple. Um, some people trust them equal amounts. You know, it's all down to personal perspective. And it's, you don't know anybody's motivations for wanting to get access to a device. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think we could probably go around and around in circles on it and still come back to the same conclusion that the only thing Apple could do was say, no, we're not doing it. And if forced by a court, you know, then, then they would have had to, I suppose, they would have had to, to rethink things. But as it was, the one court said, unlock it. Apple said, we're going to appeal it. The authorities decided that they could get it done by a third party quicker than or that that they could get it done at all um, by a third party. And now we will never know what would happen. This is going to come up again. Well, this this is the thing thing that ultimately, I mean, we've had this particular case. We've had this particular instance in which uh, the friends of the FBI, let's call let's call them that, have managed to crack this particular iPhone, which is an older type of iPhone. So there will probably be other cases. And ultimately... This will, may well go before the courts. I, I would say this will come up again because, as I said, just because that particular method, that, which the FBI have not said what method they used, and they're probably not going to, uh, which in itself is problematic because that does, does that mean now that they have, uh, I suppose, a, a little repository of security vulnerabilities? I mean, I know that there is talk that the NSA has this, so they can use them on high-profile targets. But, you know, if... Usually when a vulnerability is found in software, it's publicised and it's patched. So you know and I know that the products that we're using, that they're as safe as they can be at that moment in time. Now, 10 years down the road, obviously things will have moved on. And if you had an iPhone, you say you freeze it in time, you don't update it. Chances are in 5, 10, 15 years, you can go back with new software, new security, uh, go back and, and get access to that because things move so rapidly. Um, but, you know, it's, I just, I'm, I'm just so uncomfortable with the idea that, uh, that this is now, it's, it's kind of gone out of the public eye. You know, it was originally being fought as a public case. And then the FBI has decided that, no, they have what they need for now. So they're going to just back off, which is, in, it is a victory in a way for Apple. But it also kind of sticks them with the fallout um, because people are now saying, well, what kind of access do they have? What kind of hack do they use? Is my device vulnerable? And the question could well arise for the rivals of Apple as well. Exactly. I mean, nothing is 100% and that is something that everybody has to keep in mind. Security is as good as it can be. Um, there's obviously this personal responsibility. Like You don't do stupid things like picking a really easy to guess password because once somebody has that password well then you can uh, you get basically the whole phone decrypts the the most commonly chosen password or the most uh, commonly guessed password is all sixes and a lot of people will still use that despite the fact because it's easy to put in and people forget passwords and you know, it's easy just to remember this one but that inherently is a problem it's a it's a flaw that you're introducing yourself 
Um, so there's personal responsibility to it and keeping devices updated. But then there's also, I think, that, that to stay one step ahead of people who have either malicious intentions or who just want access to encrypted devices, you know, these people are always working um, their hardest, I suppose, to, to crack security. Um, and it's just one of those things that you, you just have to keep going. You know, that, that the companies have to keep improving on their security. Nothing is ever 100%, though. And as I said, six months down the line, even, you could find a vulnerability that they didn't know about before. And then all of a sudden, somebody finds it and your whole phone is open. I mean, Android has been hit by a couple. And while companies are usually quite quick to react to it, um, you're kind of de- you're dependent on people telling you about these kind of things. And this is obviously what the FBI are not going to do. They're not going to tell Apple exactly what they did to get into this phone if anything. Kira O'Brien, thank you very much. Whether we come back to this story in six months or before it or after it, we'll have to see. My thanks to JJ Vernon, who is in command of Sound, and to John Casey, producer of this edition of the Irish Times Business Podcast. And also thanks again to Alan McQuaid of Marion Stockbrokers and John McCartney of Savills. My name is Arthur Beasley. Tune in again, please, to the Irish Times Business Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.